This audio session is taken from the Shofar Bible School first year course. You can register for the full Bible School course by visiting our Shofar online store at www.shofaronlinestore.org. The topic for this session is The Fellowship of Believers. It is part of Module 12, The Body of Christ. Welcome everybody. Um, good to have you guys back for another session on this module where we're looking at church and the importance of church. We hope that you've enjoyed your journey with us thus far. Today, we, or in the session, we're going to look at the fellowship of believers. Now, up to now, what we have ascertained is that church is both strange and beautiful, both difficult and easy. And church is God's idea. God formed church and has decided to put each and every one of us within a community, called us not just as individuals, but as a community. More specifically, as a community of God's people who gather together. And God's people gather together so that we can get to know Him better and so that we can get to reflect Him better. And the way we do that and the best way in which we do that and the way in which God has designed life to work is to do that together so I can better get to know God. In other words, I can become a better disciple of Him and I can better reflect God when I do that together with other people. Now, the how we do that and the platforms that we, we use to do that, that is um, really a discussion for another day. Safe to, to say that do whatever you need to do together with God's people. For where we are right now, maybe where we were when you uh, watch this and you look back during this time, we were all confronted with the different ways in which we had to adapt together to come together, whether it was over uh, virtual media, whether it was through delayed broadcasts, but we had to be intentional around meeting together, still maintaining the connection with one another. And that is what God has, has called us to do. We all belong to the same kingdom. We gather to reflect the king. And therefore, competition between each other really shouldn't be there. There should not be competition between an individual member with another individual member within a local church because we all live to serve each other. And there should not be competition between one local church and another local church because even local churches serve other local churches, or at least we should esteem others higher than what we esteem ourselves because we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to God, we belong to Christ. So, how do we bring this home to, to where we are at and how do we make this relevant? A local church that is different to the universal church, that is spiritual and eternal, a local church is a local community gathering within a local context. And in order for that local context, that local gathering to grow, to, to flourish, to be vital, to be life-giving, that local church needs to function in a specific way. And that is what we want to look at. We want to look at what is the functioning that is needed for a church to grow. Let me remind you of our definition um, again. You know, my, my kids often quote their teachers who tell them, when I wake you up at three o'clock in the morning, you need to be able to say this. And uh, hopefully by now, if you are woken up at three o'clock in the morning, you'd be able to say with me that church is a contrast. 
community centered around Christ. Contrast community centered around Christ. So in other words, Christ is at the center. So even when we talk about the functioning of church, um, and very often we have a lot of discussions, a lot of debates, a lot of church splits around how should church function, but we need to take a step back and start with the first question. That is, is Jesus still central to the church, to the church's activities? Is Jesus the person around which everything else revolves around church? So for instance, in our local church setting, we often have a visitor's card that we would hand out to our visitors and we would ask them for their contact details, but we would also ask for some feedback from them. And I wonder if we were to give Jesus a visitor's card and ask him for some feedback, what would he say about our church services? Because Jesus really is the most important person in any church gathering, any church service. So what would Jesus say about my sermon? What would Jesus say about the hospitality? What would Jesus say about the kids' church activities? What would Jesus say about the worship? Let us gear everything that we do and how we do it around pleasing Jesus. Because Jesus is the standard. And this is important because if Jesus isn't the standard for all of our activities, then the latest church fad becomes the standard, the latest thing being blogged or being podcasted or, 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 or whatever, Facebooked, that thing becomes the thing that drives us and shapes the functioning of our church. But we need to reduce all of that to this one question. If Jesus is central, how would Jesus feel about what we're doing and about how we're doing it as well? And maybe even about why we're doing it. Because often it's the why that is the most important thing within, within church and within our relationship with Christ. All right, so practically what we want to talk about is how does church community grow? This is local church family that gathers to respond to God's invitation to come to Him and then to go out into the world. To, to come and to get to know him more and to reflect him to the world. How does this church community grow? And this brings us to the question of fellowship. Now, if you have been around for any length of time, most of you probably would have heard of the Fellowship of the Ring. Now, we're not talking about that, that fellowship, even though we can glean some very beautiful truths out of, out of that. There was a common bond, there was a common purpose, there was friendship, there was a vision that they had. Within academic circles, we also see the term fellowship being used, where a fellowship gets conveyed or bestowed upon someone else. Uh, at one stage, a, a church minister asked his congregation, what do they know about fellowship or what do they think fellowship is in? And one guy said that fellowship is simply two fellows on a ship, all right? So with all of that being said, what does the Bible say about fellowship, about these two fellows that are on the ship? What does the, what does the Bible say? Because we would often say, I, I enjoyed the fellowship. The fellowship was amazing. Or maybe the fellowship wasn't that amazing. Or I'm going there because of the fellowship. Or as long as I have fellowship with other believers, I am okay. But what does fellowship mean? Now, fellowship comes from the Greek word called koinonia. Right? Koinonia is the Greek word used for fellowship. And at its root, it means two things, something which is common and something which is mutual. So for instance, 
the um, New Testament, most of the New Testament was written in Koinonia Greek, right? So that means that it wasn't the Greek spoken by the aristocracy and the uh, philosophers of the day. It was the Greek, common Greek spoken by most of the people on the ground, the tradesmen, the merchants, the teachers, uh, people in their, in their homes. So that's why the gospel could spread so quickly because God chose to write the New Testament in Greek. It was the lingua franca of the day, like the modern day English or Mandarin. Most of the world spoke it and so it spread like wildfire, didn't have to be translated. And it was spoken in everyday language, common language, koinonia. So, so the term fellowship, the term koinonia hinges upon that which we have in common or that which is mutual. Now, this of course means that on a very basic level, any relationship needs to function on mutuality. Every relationship needs to function on a common passion or a common interest. That's what brings people together. But what we want to do is before we talk about the techniques or the avenues for fellowship, how can I have greater fellowship? How can we build bonds of fellowship? We need to start with a question. Otherwise, we get bogged down in techniques again. And that's also why we rooted this whole module around church, not just in theoretical or even theological discussions around church, because there have been many books written on it and all very profound and some very good books, but we rooted it in, with, in the context that human beings need relationship to flourish. And the vehicle that God has chosen for us to flourish spiritually is the vehicle of the church community. Again, okay, so um, the question we want to ask ourselves is not so much, how can I have better fellowship? How can I have fellowship with that person or that person? What is the technique that I need to apply? Almost like any, any um, good marriage counselor will tell us that you can start with the techniques. You can start about or talking about, all right, buying the flowers, um, spending more time at home, coming home from work uh, earlier, being more attentive, listening, making notes, guys, if, if you're a man, so you can remember and follow up again and be in the moment and all of those techniques. And we can talk about those techniques and then you'll try and do those techniques and, and they are good. But the foundation of the marriage relationship really is the important one, the crucial one. And that is, this is a lifelong covenant relationship. I am not walking away from you and I will lay my life down for you. That's the nature of the bond. This isn't a contract. This isn't, you give me a little bit of time, I give you a little bit of time. You give me a little bit of attention, I give you a little bit of attention. You wash the dishes, I put fuel in the car. It's, got, it's not a contract. It is a covenant and it's a lifelong and it's self-sacrificial. I lay my life down for you. That's the nature of the bond within marriage. And so before we get lost in techniques around, should it be virtual? Should it be uh, within a big group? Should it be in a small group? This fellowship, this bond? The question is, what is the nature of the bond? In other words, what keeps us together? What brings us together? And what keeps us together? Let me, let me read for you quickly our our central passage of, of the day um, speaks about the early church. They're flourishing, they're growing. There are amazing things happening. 
And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Right? There's that word, koinonia. Remember, koinonia, common, mutual. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We're reading from the ESV. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Take 10 minutes to reflect on and discuss this session's key Bible passage together with others in your class. If you are watching on your own, take a few minutes to reflect on the key Bible passage by yourself. So let me read for you just what um, this commentary says on this beautiful, on this beautiful passage of, of Scripture. Um, Thistleton speaks about this concept when he speaks about fellowship. We see fellowship being mentioned here that they, they gathered together in fellowship. Uh, they had something in common. They had some, there was something mutual. Um, and, and, and he uses the word communal participation. You would, you would have that as well. And your notes will have it up on the screen. Well, let, me, let me read the whole thing for us. He says, communal participation may seem to make heavy weather of the Greek word koinonia which is usually translated fellowship. It says fellowship is an easy word. We think we understand the word, but he, he, he develops it a little bit further and he talks about communal participation. Okay? He says the use of fellowship in church circles may convey an impression quite foreign to Paul's distinctive emphasis. He does not refer to a society or a group of like-minded people such as a Greco-Roman society. So you had guys that formed these societies uh, based around common um, uh, 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 interests, like merchant interests or, or, or social interests. And they would gather very often in these public baths and discuss things. And, and so they were, they were bonded together by those common interests. Certain specific uses of the word may have this meaning, but not this type of passage. Normally, in Paul's case, the word means communal participation in that of which all participants are shareholders. Right? Notice that word. Shareholders or are accorded a common share. It is not simply or primarily the experience of being together. Fellowship is not primarily the experience of being together as Christians, which is shared but the status of being in Christ and of being shareholders in a sonship derived from sonship in Christ. So it's not just good enough to say, I, I was with Christians and so we were in, in fellowship. It says fellowship doesn't start with the experience because we often, in this modern day, we often base the authenticity, the value of, of, of something upon how does this thing make me feel? And so much of church conversations hinges on my experience of church. 
And so if my experience of church is personal, enjoyable, I feel it adds value to my life, I've experienced something, I would say, man, that was good fellowship. I experienced something. But if it's distant, if it's impersonal, if for some other reason the music grates my ear, the preaching isn't as fantastic, or the hospitality team didn't do their work, whatever for myriad of reasons, my experience of fellowship becomes diminished, less enjoyable, and this fellowship thing isn't as exciting anymore because we start at the wrong place. We start with the experience. What, what this, this quote is saying is that there is a status where we need to start. In other words, a reality. There is a, almost like a legal place, and that legal place is the reality of us, you and me, being in Christ together. And because we are in Christ together, it really doesn't matter what our experience is. It doesn't change the fact that we are in Christ. Christ and therefore we have fellowship one with another. So for my marriage, it can mean that we are going through a tough time. It can mean that we have some issues we have to work out. It can mean that there's some tension and confrontation and some, some golden silences and some not so golden silences, but it doesn't change the fact that we are in covenant with one another. Even though my experience might not be the way it was when I dreamt of marriage, or the way it was when we stood at the altar, or the way my parents' experience was, experience doesn't change the fact that I am in covenant. The same with fellowship. Now, if we get this wrong, if we start with experience, this can manifest in, in a couple of ways. Let me just mention three to us. Often we are drawn to fellowship um, based upon the fact that you have something that is in common with me. So it could be that you're a teacher, I'm a teacher, all right? We chat about school, we chat about making a difference in school, we chat about the kids that are difficult, or um, you link up with the other single parent, or the moms hook up with each other, or all the accountants hook up with each other, man, or, or this, 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 this group is a, a yuppie young working group, love their coffee and love hanging out in the malls, and we, we just bond around that. The problem is that what happens if my interest changes? I'm not a teacher anymore, I'm now something else. Your kids grow up, you develop a different hobby, you change your career. What happens to the bond of fellowship if what brought us together initially changes? What happens to that bond if that was the only thing that kept us together? Some people come to church and enjoy fellowship or are drawn to fellowship based upon the program that the church has. So church can speak into a legitimate need, for instance, for the divorcee can speak into a legitimate need that someone who's addicted has for deliverance and for freedom and for comfort and for understanding. can speak into the need that someone who is socially ostracized experiences for, for healing and for community. But what happens if I'm not the ostracized one anymore? What happens if I'm not the one in need anymore? And I'm now able to, I've outgrown my need. What happens if I don't need the program anymore? Church can become simply a spiritual hospital or a glorified self-help club. 
and I don't need that program anymore. And I move on. Another way that we um, can sometimes be drawn to something that is transient and changing is that we, we're drawn to the vision. Man, man, that church's vision makes a whole lot of sense to me. I feel inspired by that. We can change the world because all of us want to be on a winning team. And we forget that just by being part of the people of God, we are already on the winning team. We don't need any vision. We don't need any mission to be added to the great commission that God has already given us. We are on the winning team. We are already part of something that has changed the world and is busy changing the world. Now we need to pray about how to articulate that vision. We need to pray about how to communicate that vision. But the danger is that if we are drawn to fellowship based upon the fact that I like your vision, what happens if your vision changes? What happens if my vision changes or if my revelation of the vision for my life changes? We split and we go different ways and fellowship gets broken. So demographics, practical needs and vision aren't strong enough for bonds of fellowship. The only thing that is strong enough is the understanding that we have something that goes beyond that. And that is our common shared passion for Jesus Christ. He is the glue that keeps us together. He's the glue that can keep a teenager in the same church and even in the small, same small group as a 60-year-old. He's the glue that can keep a car guard in the same small group as an accountant. Why? Because we are not brought together and we are not bonded together by our mutual and our common interest. We are bonded together through our mutual passion for Christ. Or at least we should be. Um, I'm encouraged always by the, by the disciples. You know, what a weird mix of people. Man, the way Jesus put them together. So just imagine taking a tax collector, a guy who was hated and despised, by his community, putting him in the same intimate group as a zealot, basically a terrorist. Those guys hated everything that was Rome, hated everyone that was in cohorts with the Romans. And Jesus puts them together. He, he puts the fishermen and the tax collector and the zealot and the woman and, 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 and a whole bunch of other guys in that upper room, 120 of them, puts them in there and they are bonded together around their common passion for Jesus. And out of that passion, fellowship flows. Everything else flows out of the shared passion for Jesus. Now, what, is this, what, what does this look like in, in real terms? If we get back to that passage, if we look at the passage in Acts 2, we see that there's no clear mission. There's no clear uh, direction that's given. There's no clear indication of, of, of any program that's being run for the church in that, in that context, right? They busy living life. They busy living life organically, but they are united around the passion for Christ. And the passion for Jesus Christ leads them to do certain things, right? So the passion for Jesus is not just something you say, hey, I'm passionate for Jesus and that's where it ends. Like I'm passionate about my wife, but I'm not spending any time with her. I'm, I'm not investing in the relationship at all. Just won't cut it. The same for us. If we say that I'm passionate about Christ and Christ is at the center of our gathering together, then we can take some good cues from the early church as to how that passion flowed into certain habits, 
flowed into certain habits and how those habits once again filled the passion. So we see these two flowing together, the passion for Jesus, the habits that lead to greater passion flowing together. Let me mention three habits quickly. They were devoted to the apostles' teachings. So they weren't devoted to, to Paul. They weren't devoted to, to Peter. They weren't devoted to, 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 to Matthew or to any one of the apostles, late apostles like, like Paul. They were devoted to their teachings. What, what, what is that? That's scripture. And so we are devoted first and foremost, not to a man, we're devoted to Jesus and to the teaching of the word. And so every church that comes together must have as a healthy functioning church, the priority of the word of God. And that is, and that is shared in the big group context as it was in the temple. And it is shared in a smaller group context within home as well. Often today, people would have huge debates around big group versus small group. We see that within scripture that we had both operating. Sometimes because of necessity, we can only meet in small groups, but where possible, gather in larger groups as well as the early church did here. So they met together in the temple and they met together um, from home to home as well. So whenever we come together, let's make use of an opportunity to share the word, to read the word, to learn from each other as to what the word of God says, to be open to teaching and to the preaching of the word. Secondly, they were devoted. In other words, they were in the habit, they were in the custom of coming together regularly to eat, to have communion and to pray. All right, just so much bonding that happens around eating. It's beautiful. Uh, a human gift that God has given us through which we can fellowship with one another. But also, it is the eating in terms of partaking of the Lord's body. When we take communion, we focus our attention on Jesus. We take our attention off ourselves. When we pray, we look away from ourselves and we focus on Jesus. Thirdly, and maybe more challenging than probably any of the other ones is the fact that they had all things in common, the Bible says. They shared their mutual belongings with one another. And this is a passage, of course, that leads to radical generosity, which speaks of radical generosity. It speaks of a capacity which the people of God had where they understood that the measure in which we as a community care for each other is the measure to which we grasp the fullness of what Christ has done for us. The way I care for my brother is the way that I reveal, that I understand how much Jesus cares for me. Defective caring for someone else really means there's a defective understanding of how much God loves me. Now, this passage is so challenging. I mean, it just completely challenges the, the, the shoes off our feet as the modern day church. The context of this was that within the, 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 the time when the Bible was written, especially during this time, within Galilee and within Judea, about 90% of the population lived very close to starvation. The Roman Empire was uh, promoted and advanced through a, through a relatively small but powerful and ruthless military regime that conquered vast areas of land and then left behind an aristocracy with a puppet king and a, a garrison of Roman soldiers who would make sure that the law was enforced. But they then mostly left those people to themselves for as long as they would receive tax and tribute. And so what would happen was that the aristocracy, the local aristocracy, political as well as religious, would then um, entrench themselves so they could get the most benefit. They would 
give them money, the tax and the tribute to Rome, and they would take a whole lot to themselves. The poor people would very often have no other avenue to pay off their debt but to sell their land. It's all that they had as an agricultural society. They sold their land and they were then in debt. No land, no produce, starvation at their doorstep. And so the desperation was so great that many, many, many of these men became bandits, terrorists that fought against Rome in an attempt to put food on the table. And here's where the contrast community comes into play. This group of believers were living so radically different, saying that this King Jesus, remember we said this, there's this beautiful song even that we sing nowadays in many of our churches, all hail King Jesus. It's one thing to sing it. It's one thing to preach it. The way that this kingdom of Jesus manifested in this contrast community was to say, hey, there's a king called Caesar. Hey, there's a king called Herod. And what they do is they take. They take and they take and they take and they take. But King Jesus gives. And because we have received from him, we give to one another. And so what they were doing there was they were living in such a way that it blew the minds of those around them. We've never met such a king. We've never met such a kingdom. We want to be part of that kingdom where people love one another, where they're united around the preaching, and the teaching of the word, where they gather together to eat and to pray, where they witness miracles and salvation, and where they care for one another. A contrasting community centered around the bonds of fellowship, which is rooted in the fact that you and I together are in Christ, and that makes us who we are. The Lord bless you. Enjoy your discussion questions as you dig into the word. Looking forward to seeing you in the next session where we will wrap up. Blessings. Take 15 minutes to reflect on and discuss the following points together with others in your class. If you are watching on your own, take a few minutes to reflect on the points by yourself. You can find the discussion points in your Bible school handbook. Look out for the Living the Word sections in each session.